You're listening to an American Theatre podcast. American Theatre is a publication of Theatre Communications Group. www.americantheatre.org Welcome to our more or less annual uh, discussion of the state of arts journalism and criticism, which despite popular reports, still exists and still going strong. Thanks. Mm-hmm. This is examples right here. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to Deep Scapable Hands to moderate this uh, session. And just so everyone knows, we are recording this as a podcast, which we'll put out on American Theater's off-script podcast feed. So if you want to re-listen to this again for some odd reason, you can. <laughs> Okay, first, hello. Um, my name's Deep Tran. I am the senior editor of American Theatre Magazine, and I'm going to leave these lovely ladies to introduce themselves for you. Hello, everyone. My name is Rosalind Early, and I am a freelance um, arts writer and critic. I write for St. Louis Magazine, and I also write for American Theatre Magazine. And my day job, if anyone cares, is with uh, Washington University's Alumni Magazine. And my name is Judith Newmark, and I'm the drama critic, which is to say the entire drama staff of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, a daily newspaper that still has a drama critic full-time. Yeah, and I'm not retiring. Uh, Edit to the end. Uh, I'm Carrie Reed. I'm a freelance critic with the Chicago Tribune. Been freelance there for about 16 years. I also write for the Windy City Times, which is an LGBTQ weekly. I've also written for American Theater, and I'm a member of the executive committee of the American Theater Critics Association, which is a national organization of about 250 critics uh, across the country. I think we have representatives in about 35 or 36 states at this point. And the reason American theater is really passionate about this subject of theater criticism is we cover theater around the country and we cover all types of artists from, you know, front of house to actors on stage to backstage. And we consider theater critics and people who write about theater as part of that community in facilitating dialogue between artists and audience. And there, I feel like there is usually a misconception that people who write about theater were just failed theater artists who didn't have anything better to do. So, I, and we don't have a lot of time. So, in a very quick two minutes bullet point thing, tell me about how you became, you, how you decided to do this job. And why? <laughs> well, I might be a failed writer. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) No, I wanted to uh, write professionally, and I got into journalism first. And then when I was working at St. Louis Magazine, um, there was an opportunity to start reviewing plays. And so I am just self-taught. I was really interested in criticism. And from that, I got connected with American Theater. And that's all she wrote. (laughs) And I have worked at the Post-Dispatch since the dawn of time. As as you know, I I was uh, an English major and a medievalist because I had no no intention of ever getting a job. And and when I finished finished college, uh, where my dad, I was the queen of the drama club. We didn't have a department, but we had a club. And, you know, in a way, it was perfect because Bryn Mawr was all about, we don't do art, we discuss art. <laughs> and, and, and so uh, I, I needed a job. And the only, the, uh, I couldn't even type very well. 
And yes, there were still typewriters. There were still manual typewriters in the newsroom. I'm really old. And when uh, I thought, what can I do? And the only thing I could do was I could write faster than anybody I'd ever met. And I thought, who pays you to do that? So I went to work at the Post. I seriously doubt anybody like me gets that job now. And I covered news, and I covered fashion for a long time, and I was the editor of our Sunday magazine. And my predecessor, I think the Post-Dispatch, where people tend to stay a long time, we've only had three theater critics, really, in the last, oh, 60 years, <laughs> really. And when my predecessor retired, I walked across the room. I was the editor of the old Sunday mag, and Joe said, uh, I said, Mazel Tov, you're entitled. And I said, I want his job, but I don't want his whole job, because Joe was the critic of everything. And I said, I know nothing about wine. Restaurants, dining, that's the last thing I need, right? And for the movies, I mean... I don't care about big explosive device movies. You know, it's not all interesting films about relationships. I said, but I don't think we're doing enough with theater, and I could do that. I think that's a full-time job. And amazingly, this is some years ago. This was 1995. The editor said, okay, <laughs> let's see what happens. And, and you'll write other stuff too now? And I said, sure, I can, I, I can still... Fry cook a story. I could, I could, I could do an interview, and uh, and the job has sort of grown. And uh, I, one thing I should mention: since since uh, I took the position of a, a, a colleague of mine who writes, who's the critic at the Ladue News, which is a much smaller paper, uh, we started the St. Louis Theater Circle, which is a critics' organization locally, and. I think I am probably the only one in the group who actually has a full-time job at it, but we are real active, and we have made a difference in the theater scene here. Um, I don't know. I might be one of those failed artists. I'm not sure. I started out studying journalism actually at Mizzou, the University of Missouri, which is about 125 miles west of here off I-70. At the time, I think I wanted to be more of an investigative journalist. I came up you know, I was a kid during the Woodward Bernstein thing, and my parents were really dyed-in-the-wool liberals, so I thought, yes, this is what I'm going to do. I spent a semester studying abroad in London, and theater tickets were dirt cheap, so one night I went to see a show, I always say, but by a German guy I'd barely heard of, starring a woman I'd never heard of. This was Mother Courage and Her Children with Judy Dench. <laughs> So Wanamaker played Katrin. So this was a completely mind-blowing experience, and I knew I wanted to do something in theater. And I'd taken some summer workshops with Second City in Chicago, which is where I was born. Um, so I came back to Mizzou, was completely at a loss, dropped out. It was my senior year, and my m late mother, rest her soul, said, please go to Columbia College Chicago and finish your degree. We don't care what you get it in, just finish your degree. And at that time, Columbia College, which is one of my classmates was David Cromer, so yes, I am going to shamelessly point that out. Um, <laughs> he was really talented even then, although not somebody I would have thought would direct a Broadway musical at the time. Um, <laughs> And they were very open admissions, so you could, so I sort of just took a lot of theater classes, and so my degree, if I had to call it something, was probably communications. I worked with a lot of small, off-off-loop fringe theater companies in Chicago. The first 
paper I wrote for was Streetwise, which is the newspaper the homeless people sell. I was not homeless, but um, a good friend of mine was the executive editor, and they really wanted to have some, sorry, executive director, they really wanted to have some stories that were just generally about the art scene, and he knew, I knew people in fringe theater. I moved to San Francisco in the 90s, and really just to kind of get to know the art scene there, I started freelancing for various places, and uh, it just sort of snowballed. I was the freelance chief critic for the East Bay Express, which is the alt-weekly covering Oakland and Berkeley, moved back to Chicago in 2000, and um, within a very short time was freelancing for the Chicago Reader and then the Chicago Tribune. Um, I have done some playwriting along the way. Um, if you work at a daily, they tend to not want you to be pursuing what it is you're covering, so that's sort of taken a back seat in the last few years. Um, and that, you know, I've seen the sort of shifts and falls in fortune. Um, most recently in Chicago, uh, Chris Vier, who was the theater editor for Time Out Chicago and a very well-respected figure, um, was laid off. So we don't know if Time Out Chicago will continue to do any theater coverage. They still have a freelancer for the next month or so who's going to be picking up some shows. Definitely the Tribune has had to slash some coverage. They, in fact, just moved out of the Tribune Tower, um, which is now going to be condominiums. Um, so... I don't know. We can look at that as a metaphor for the state of journalism overall, if you want. Yet at the same time, I'm meeting people every day, either through the Critics Association or just by going out to shows in Chicago who are running their own blogs, who are doing podcasts, who really want to talk about this. And I'm blessed to be in a city like Chicago, which has such a wide array of shows and so many companies that are popping up every year, and also fringe companies that have been there for 25, 30 years who are not necessarily interested in doing the next Steppenwolf thing, but are very much interested in continuing to do good work at a sustainable scale that speaks to what they think is important and what the and what their community is interested in. So, Right. I think Carrie touched on something that we really wanted, that was a main focus of this session for wanting to do it, which is Chicago is a gigantic theater town, and now they only have one full-time theater critic, right. who is Chris Jones at the, at the Chicago Tribune. And so, because the main reason why editors want to cut coverage is theater coverage does not get enough clicks. Because before, you, didn't have, you, you couldn't measure how many eyeballs read a theater story. Now you can. And so therefore, they can see, oh, this thing only got a 1,000 hits. It's not worth us putting time and resources into doing this. And so within the metrics culture, how is that, how has that defined like how you do your work? I hate clicks. <laughs> it is, it, and I have offered to begin, to put in the lead of every uh, story a, a a body sexual reference, you know, <laughs> if that would help. Uh, you know, Christina Rios, her bosom heaving, <laughs> sad. <laughs> and, and, and I have many examples, but okay, we're not going to, I, I loved what, uh, there was a piece that Chris, I'm sorry, that uh, Veer, it's Chris. Where he said, you know, you can't expect people to click on something when they're when they're not interested to begin with in the subject. I mean, you would hope that people would thumb through an actual newspaper. And remember, I worked for an actual newspaper that had no online component, and it was 
you know, it was heaven. <laughs> we may not have thought so at the time. What concerns me now is that it's going to be really difficult. And I am willing to do just about anything. Um, two things I, I've been kind of proud of. Every year, an artist that I work with, a visual artist, and I do a full-page Shakespeare cartoon. I write it, and John draws it, and that goes with the free festival, because... You know, it's a free festival, and it's in Forest Park. Where did you go to the Muni? Maybe yeah, that's Forest Park. It's the heart of the city. It's everybody's park. So why doesn't everyone go to the festival? It's free, and I decided it was because they were scared of Shakespeare. So we do a cartoon version. Some years are harder than others. Macbeth was not a lot of fun, but <laughs> uh, we had a knife count. I am really willing to not to look at myself as an advocate for a theater, but as an advocate for theater. And, the, you know, I, I really feel like a person, there is something on a stage that you would like, that you would find intriguing. I mean, the next step, now let's go to something you don't know you'll like. But I'm, I really try to think, what, you know, occasionally you hear from the theaters, who would like a story, of course. They want an advancer. Of course, I get that. But uh, I have more than once had to say, you know, I don't work for you. Mm-hmm. I work for my readers. And, in you know, more immediately for Lee. But Lee, Lee Publishing, they're about clicks. My readers aren't. Right. right, and I always find this dichotomy between what you hear from publishers and the higher-ups about, you know, we really need to refocus. The new paradigm is local. We really need to be hyper-local. And I'm thinking nothing is more local than your local performing arts scene. It literally cannot be replicated anywhere else. Well, but it doesn't get the click. So I think, well, at some point, I think pick a lane, right? Um, <laughs> I, I also think a very, I, I mean, I was just thinking about this, and I was talking about this with somebody downstairs. You know, in the old model of the newspaper era, Colonel McCormick, the McCormick family, which ran the Chicago Tribune, they were rock-ribbed conservatives. The, the, I think the first Democrat that the uh, Tribune ever endorsed for president was Barack Obama, and I'm sure there's a bit of this with the, in Colonel McCormick's grave. But um, what that meant, if you had these family-centered papers is at least there was a sense of noblesse oblige that you are going to have arts desks in part because you're all on the same boards the symphony the, the the opera the ballet you are going to have foreign desks because you don't want your paper to look like some podunk operation you want to be able to stand tall and proud and be able to say our paper is as good as anything they have in new york we are getting pulitzers we are get doing important coverage and now that it's all run by some labyrinthine mesh of hedge fund managers that I can't begin to understand, I think that the clicks and the bean counting is what really drives the day. Um, and I find that really sad, and I'm not sure that I actually have answers for that. So if any of you do, please let us know. Do you have thoughts? Um, well, I guess the only thing I've really noticed is my my editor actually is pushing me to write more previews instead of reviews. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that in a way it's not... I mean, like, I feel as if what it's doing is more eroding your ability to make money as, like, a critic or a a writer about theater because, I mean, like, my editor is kind of always like, yeah, I'll take more content because the internet's a beast and I have to feed it, but, (laughs) like, I can't pay you very much. Like, I could not live on, like, that freelance income, so... 
I, I still feel like there are opportunities to write. It's just sure. you can't live. It's okay with me, frankly. If if I got it hasn't happened. <laughs> but I I think if they said all we're gonna put in the paper is advancers, profiles, that kind of thing, the reviews are going to STL today, which is our online. I'd be okay with that. That's where most of our readers are anyway. But what I do like about it, we always say, oh, if only I worked at the New York Times, then that I could just review. Or if you taste it, that I could just write the profiles and all that. Because the rest of us, we're all doing the mm -hmm. whole desk. But I like doing that. They draw very well. And I think it is good for people throughout St. Louis or Chicago mm -hmm. or wherever to realize there are artists among us. People, stories like that do very well, and I like it. I, uh, I developed a, a thing that we're doing right now. What do we call it? Snapshot, where I'll talk to an actor, to a playwright, and it's, it's a good, fast take, and, and they get hits. And I also have found, and this is sad, but obits do extremely well. Mm. When someone in the theater community dies, I write a Nice open. Well, uh, I remember there was a panel at the Goodman Theater that Chris Fire uh, uh, moderated, and I think Deep, you were on that panel. And one of the things he talked about is the whole star system. When I first came up at the Tribune, we didn't have to assign, assign stars to reviews. I don't. Do you have to do those, Judith? Or? I have refused to do it for years. Good and, for you. And <laughs> by now, since in look, it's not just theater. We when when our visual arts critic. Uh, retired. That was over five years ago. He hadn't been replaced. Right. Well, because I think the problem with the star system, and this is something Chris went into greater detail on, if you're talking about clicks, uh, you know, a, a, a rave will get lots of clicks because the theater company and everybody associated with it is probably sending it around. A really entertaining pan will probably get a lot of clicks. If you write it in a way that so people are like, oh my God, look at the, you know, there'll be rubbernecking, right, on that one. But, you know, the things that are in the middle, like the, I don't know, the two and a half star review, and those can be the hardest to write because it's, there's something here. It's not quite gelling. It's not quite working for me. I'm not sure what it is. Those are the ones I wrestle with because I think I owe it, especially to new work or for a newer company, to give it as full and fair a hearing as I possibly can because I am very aware that it, fair or not, the tribute, if I'm, especially there, if I'm there for the tribune, the tribune review is probably going to carry more weight and it will have more impact. Um, so when I'm wrestling with that and then thinking, well, if people are only looking at the stars, or the thumbs up, thumbs down sort of assessment. I don't know if that's helpful. Um, I don't know if that's helping readers get a sense of there's something interesting here. And I, I was actually talking to uh, Jeremy Wexler of Theater Wit in Chicago last night. And when I wrote for the Chicago Reader, we didn't have stars. We just had recommended. You had a recommended list. So online, oh, this is recommended. I wonder what it's about. You would have to click on the review and read about it and realize, oh, it's this great piece, but it sounds a little you know, not to my taste. You know, they're giving it a great review. It's maybe not something I personally would want to see. Um, but if you're only going with the stars or the, you know, the kind of the immediate hit thing, then I don't know that you're helping your readers really develop a sense of what, what all is out there that they might be willing to take a chance on. Right. And like, spe and speaking of things that get a lot of traffic, I have noticed in my writing, think, Controversies and controversial opinions 
get a lot of traffic because people just love to argue on the internet. If you ever, if you have a Twitter account, you will know that. <laughs> and so, and s- speaking of Twitter, like what I've know when I was in journalism school, I'm, I trained as a journalist. I've always wanted to be a journalist. I, this theater thing just kind of happened out of the blue. And, and they always told me, like, you need to build a personal brand for yourself, not, not affiliated with a publication, but for yourself, so that your, your readers will follow you, and they will read things for because they like you as a person, and they relate to you as a human being. And so whenever I write, I come to it from a point of view of, I don't, it's like, I don't hate Miss Saigon because I'm like a theater god who knows all everything about all things, and therefore I think you should hate Miss Saigon. I hate Miss Saigon because it offends me as a Vietnamese person. So, and I feel like there's a shift here in terms of like the voice you're allowed to have as a critic, and it's no longer the authoritative, white, male, gazy, you know, uh, omniscient voice. Like, have you you all noticed that? Oh, look at this panel. (laughs) I mean... I, I can remember what I was at a meeting years ago, and someone said, "What is the voice of authority?" And I said, "Baritone." You know. <laughs> and they always have the really good hair. Baritones <laughs> always have the good hair. <laughs> yeah, that's been a real shift. But I'll tell you what scares me about that: when a profession becomes dominantly female, it often drops in status. Mm. I don't like to say that. I uh, I went to a school. I had an education that was all about women can women can do what are expected to. But I really I, it worries me. It worries me the way uh, I have a. It, it's happened in other professions. It's happened in obstetrics. It is happening though because I remember like last year, Laura Collins Hughes. She's one of the reviewers for New York Times, and she's not mm-hmm. Jesse Green or Ben Brantley. She's a second tier reviewer, so mm-hmm. she doesn't get a full time job with health benefit with health benefits. But she reviewed a show, and she didn't like it. And then the artistic director basically said, "Why did you send the second tier reviewer to review my show?" Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he, I, I can't believe he'd have the nerve to say that. You got a review in the Times. You know how difficult right, that is. Right. <laughs> I also noticed. It, I mean, there's a essay I go back to frequently. It was written back in the '90s by Katha Pollitt of the of the Nation, and it's called "Affirmative Action Begins at Home." And she talks about the paucity of people of color, of people from marginalized communities, even in those hip liberal alternative papers, magazines like The Nation or New Republic or Atlantic. And, um, you know, I, I think that that's, it's changing, but I think it's interesting that now we're talking about it when the jobs aren't paying, as you say, they're not offering the full-time benefits. And uh, something that just came through the wire a couple days ago, the Chicago Reader, uh, which is the well-respected alt-weekly for Chicago, had for several years been owned by the parent company of the Sun-Times. The Sun-Times has gone through some ownership shifts. They just sold the Chicago Reader to the Chicago Crusader, which is a longtime African-American publication, which I think is a really interesting development. And I hope the Reader can keep going. And I think that's going to be a good, positive thing. But a few months ago, there was a controversy. The reader had hired a new managing editor who was there for about two weeks and lost his job because he thought it would somehow be a good idea in the wake of some revelations of some racist things that Democratic gubernatorial candidate in Illinois, J.B. Pritzker, was reputed to have said on some Blagojevich tapes. Um, so in order to show that, you know, J.B. Pritzker's a racist, they had a cover cartoon of him sitting on a lawn jockey. 
Yeah, I don't know how they thought this was a good idea. So this person was let go. The author of the the author of the article, who's a young African American writer, it was a terrific article, um, and I felt that it was overshadowed by this controversy over this absolutely needless inflammatory cover image. Uh, sat down for an interview with Ed Eisendrath of the Chicago Sun-Times. And Eisendrath was sort of beating his chest about, yeah, we definitely need to do better. We need to hire more people of color. But, you know, budgets are so tight now. And I'm thinking back to the Catholicists. I thought, you weren't hiring people of color and you weren't hiring marginalized. Not Ed Eisendrath particularly, because he hasn't been in the game that long, but in the general you of these publications, they were not making it a priority when they had the money. And it, so and they yeah. did have money. Yes. It, it was it, these were wealthy corporations, and they are reeling now. Yeah, in print. I don't know enough. You'll be writing for this. <laughs> I don't know enough about the success uh, of strictly strictly online publications that don't right. share a platform with with a print. But obviously things are changing. Obviously people, you know, my kids live in Chicago. They subscribe to the Trib. I don't think Plus, they get the paper. No, they probably don't. You no. just do it online only, yeah. And I, so we're in this period of tremendous flux. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that arts journalism is going to go away. It's not, but it's going to change. It's certain, it is changing. We have more interest in things that are community-wide, things that can reach to a broad community, things that we can sum up quickly, which is obviously not going to be your think piece on the wife of Beth, uh, which I actually wrote a very good one once, but but you you you're going to have to make it a little harder, a little sharper, and faster, newer. I, these are actually imperatives that McCormick and Pulitzer would have recognized: make it fast, make it sharp, make it uh, now, make it local. There, I and how we present it, whether it's on. A page, or a, I don't give a damn, and I don't know why anyone would. Yeah. People, there's going to be some new device that's better than anything we have now, and people will be getting there, and maybe they'll be talking right to us. I, I don't know. I just think the need is real, and I, 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 I really believe. I always tell my, I teach at Washington U. I, I tell my students, life is better with the radio on. You know, you need music, you need paintings, you need theater. You will lead a better life. I am a mother. I have said this over and over. I think people will be happier and more satisfied. And so our job is to point them in this happy direction. I would never want it to be eat your spinach journalism. Um, well, this is kind of something I struggle with. I'm I'm a little bit less seasoned, so maybe it's something that I'll I'll grow into. But I do kind of struggle with like as a black woman, how much of that voice to bring into my writing and my reviews. I mean, I can't like it's not like I erase it, but there are some times that I I don't sort of trumpet it, I guess. Um, and there are some times I consciously kind of downplay that that voice so um i guess it's something i i 
would like to be more comfortable with and figure out like how much of that I should bring into my, my writing. Right. But, but, but that's not to say like you'll, it's like you can write about every show by a person of color with, and you'll like it. Right. Or you'll know how to talk about it. And like speaking of that, like I last year, I believe, um, also in Chicago, a lot of stuff happens in Chicago. <laughs> it's Weiss. all happening, baby. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, you know, last year, Hetty Weiss published a very controversial review of a play by Antoine. Antoinette Nwandu called Passover about two young black men um, we, uh, talking on the side of the, of the road. And and there was a cop, a uh, police officer character. And then she wrote a very controversial review, which then led to a bunch of people wanting her to um, have her press pass revoked, basically, to all shows. Uh, she basically said, what about black on black crime? Uh, the, what is, because artists are now more diverse and they, it seems like artists expect like a level of cultural competency or at least knowledge or understanding within when a critic sits in the room and considering that most critics are still white and male like what like i'm not even i'm not sure that's true yeah 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 but like but for uh, for, yeah for all of us sitting sitting at this table like what like when do we like, how do we acknowledge that we won't always get it right? Well, I, I, well, no, I, I can definitely think of times that I've gotten it wrong. And I think the problem isn't so much getting it wrong. I think the problem is your reaction to being, you know, being told. I mean, most times if I've said, I can remember very early on, uh, riding in the Bay Area, I used the phrase confined to a wheelchair and somebody called me on it as they well should have. And I, you know, I apologized and I, struck that from my vocabulary and it was you know and then it was like it was fine i learned something thank you we're all human we're all learning uh sometimes you're on you know in the heat of like i'm trying to get this done you just pull out you know a phrase that's somewhere in your cortex that you put on you know you put on a page and it goes out and you're like yeah that wasn't the best way to do that i think where you get into problems is it, it where you show your privilege is if you're resistant to hearing people tell you why that was a problem or why that doesn't instead. Well, you know, you just, you're just unhappy because I wrote a bad review and, or you're just, un, you know, you don't understand how hard this job is. No, just take the moment, listen. If, if you have something factually wrong, absolutely issue a correction with all apologies. And in most cases, I think that's when it goes away. I mean, you know, you've learned, you, you'll do better and people don't think that you're some, you know, representative of everything that's wrong with the system you're just a person who made a mistake and you're learning from it i mean <laughs> i think it's pretty easy to apologize yeah. or, or or correct whatever yeah. is appropriate yeah. but what i really like people to remember do you know why newspapers are called fish wrapping because you wrap the old fish in them the next day and threw it out we have to remember this is impermanent right. no one thing Hedy's one review. No one thing is the issue. It's that in time you learn a point of view. I doubt if there are many people in St. Louis who don't know that I have, you know, people interested in theater, they know I'm a mom. They know I'm Jewish. They know who I'm related to, probably. <laughs> it's, you, you, over time, you build that, your characterization, you build up 
Hey, yeah, maybe they'd say that bitch, I hate her, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> An actor once told my daughter, I have your mom's face on a dartboard. <laughs> Do you know what I had said about this man? I said he didn't seem to have the magic kiss. That was it. I mean, you just, you know, you'll never make everybody happy, sure. right? Because you're, because yeah. they want the review their mother would write. <laughs> I have never been so moved. But, in time, <laughs> but in time, in time, they get to know you and they, and you have a back and forth and you see them at the theater and Rosalind, you're really young, and in time, your readers will get to know you, too, I hope. What scares me is, but I think Deep made the good point, she was taught, you're not going to work here forever, you know, build yourself, not your association with the publication. I come from a paper where there were, when I started, there were people who remembered when getting a byline was a reward. Mm -hmm. Your identity was all about the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the Pulitzers. And I don't think that world exists any longer. you got to be for yourself. Well, especially because the Pulitzer is only $10,000, which you can also win if you just win Chopped. So. <laughs> <laughs> no more scratch-offs for me. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, I really disagree with what uh, Judith said. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't want to make it make it us talking at all of you because there's a lot of people in this room. So I'm going to turn yes. this microphone around, and whoever wants to come and ask a question, please do so. But please, questions, not is, comments. Is that water? this is Jeopardy? Is yes, that water? is water. Go get water. No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I will ask a question. I, I want to voice a, a frustration first, which will I, I will turn into a question. I promise. Um, uh, but one is, I think, uh, I think we the, in Philadelphia. I, I work for Pig Iron Theater in Philadelphia. Philadelphia has a very vibrant art scene, right. particularly uh, devising, and we um, we do a lot of premieres in Philadelphia. Um, and my frustration is, I think we're losing those premieres. Uh, Pig Iron tours internationally and nationally, um, but because we don't have a dedicated paid theater reviewer currently in Philadelphia. Um, we aren't able to get the reviews that we then need in order to tour right. shows. Um, not to mention that oftentimes the premieres that happen in Philadelphia are... Um, are pushed under the rug in favor for the uh, premieres or when they move to New York because that New York Times review seems to be the one that, yeah. you know, sticks and matters. Um, so in Philadelphia, particularly during the Fringe Festival, which is, I worked for the Fringe Festival for a while, um, we come to really rely on volunteer reviewers. Uh, which I have mixed feelings about. These are, these are folks that are usually students and are tapped by online publications and are either paid nothing, uh, paid through the comps that they get, or $5 a review. Um, and uh, I think that there's the best intentions for these editors um, to be able to like create reviews for as many people as possible. Um, but it often leads to some discomfort on the part of the artist having someone come to see their show that might not be seasoned. So I'd, I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind um, speaking to volunteer reviewers and, and what your what your thoughts are on on that trend in uh, in theater writing. 
I mean, you know, I, I'm very, I, I'm, and sometimes I feel like I'm a lot more old school than I appear, but I, and I'm of the mind that all press is good press. And unfortunately, as outlets are cutting reviewers, it's, it may be, it may be up to theater companies to generate their own coverage. That's just the, that may be something that needs to happen. And, but the thing is, there's also, there's also this illusion that it only matters when it's a big review right. from like the New York Times or the Washington Post. And I, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna speak the name of uh, my colleague, Jose Solis, who is a wonderful Latinx theater critic in New York City. And he's been complaining a lot about how he writes, he writes for a very a smaller website. But though, usually those publicists will not share his reviews or share his coverage because they don't think it, right. it matters as much. And so if we put out this work that you ask us to put out and you don't amplify the work, and you, and by not amplifying, you're just saying, well, it wasn't this big times feature, so why, why do I need to? Why do I need to? There's another aspect of this that I hadn't thought about until last year in Chicago. I went to a panel on cultivating critics of color, and one of the speakers was Koya Paz, who was one of the co-founders of Teatro Luna, um, all Latina theater company. She currently teaches at DePaul, and now she runs Free Street Theater, which is a community-based company that does work throughout the city, um, community storytelling, a really wonderful company. And she said... She can get a review from a like a local community-based publication, somebody who is, you know, oftentimes of that community, understands the work that they're creating. She will find it more thoughtful, even if they don't love the work. Their analysis she will find more thoughtful than maybe something she's getting in a more mainstream publication. But then when she puts her producer hat on, she knows it's the larger publications that the funders are also looking at. The grantors want to see a trip review. The grantors want to see... Um, Joseph Jefferson Awards, which is our local theater award. And so when she's putting those packets together, that's where, which doesn't change the fact that you can still be amplifying online all the reviews. Um, I, I absolutely think that should be done. So I think that's another element of this. How do we, and I don't know how much we here can do, but what can happen within the larger arts community to be educating funders about the value of reviews that come from across the spectrum. Uh, she said most of the program directors get it. The people who come to see her work really support it. They understand what they're doing. But then there's that, um, you know, when the, the people higher up who are actually making the funding decisions who are saying, yeah, well, you don't have a trip review. You don't have this, you don't have that. And that's that's where it becomes difficult. So I don't know if that addresses what you were yeah. getting at. But, but like, I sometimes wonder, like, Excuse. I mean, I, Mine went off at the diner. Newspapers. <laughs> I, I'll talk through it like an actor. Like newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> newspapers are for-profit entities from now until until the foreseeable future when they finally realize they should be nonprofits. <laughs> but so until that happens, they're going to be chasing clicks. That's just that is the reality of it, and you all need to acknowledge that, that is the reality of it. And so, what can you do? You can share content from the entire the like all theater coverage if you can. Not just the things like your theater is that's written about your theater, but the things that are, are written about other theaters because we need to all build an interest in the art form there and then people will read about the art form and then go to the art form. It's not just about like your one institution. And, and even if they're not necessarily positive reviews, I remember a company I wrote and not, I was kind of like 
pretty mixed on it. And they sent out emails. They're like, hey, you guys can be the judge. Here's this great review. And here's this other review. And I thought, well, that's great. I mean, and they weren't being mean about it. They're like, hey, and here's what this idiot had to say. They were just kind of like, and now it's in your hands. I think that's wonderful. Maybe because I have always worked in a, 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 you know, a features group. I'm not, not in a theater publication. I would say, don't confine it just to other theaters. Is there an interesting uh, orchestra, little jazz group, a, a modern dance company? The arts are going to have to learn that they are all related. The person who loves modern dance is way more likely to say, perhaps I should go to the play, than the person who has never done anything but go to the stadium. Right. You know, so get that overlap. My question is, it occurs to me, um, part of what I'm hearing here is that there's also a, a new opportunity for journalists uh, in terms of the arts. And perhaps, uh, I think, Carrie, you said there was a national organization uh, yeah. that you belong to. Yeah, the American Theater Critics Association. And we are not just, I mean, we started probably more as, like, the daily critics and over the last few decades. Obviously, we've had to shift that. And now we're actually more about theater criticism and journalism. So you don't necessarily need to be writing production reviews. So, so if it's about clicks, mm -hmm. um, why not put together a theater journalism critics website that everybody across the nation contributes to? So we know what's happening in Des Moines and New York City and Philadelphia and St. Louis. And we can start to think about plays and it would be searchable. What about, what about pulling together a group of uh, seasoned uh, critics and starting your own website? And it could also be, I mean, you could, I think if you got enough clicks, right. then it starts to become its own economic engine. Well, this is something I, uh, we have been talking about in the, in uh, Theater Critics Association having something that's sort of the equivalent of Arts Journal. I don't know how many of you get that in your feed. So it wouldn't just be reviews. It would also be larger cultural reporting. It would be issues in the arts. Um, and, it, and I agree with Judith. It, doesn't, it shouldn't just only be limited to theater. I mean, I think the more you're willing and able as a writer to go out. For a few years, I was writing about uh, museums as well in Chicago, and that was so much fun, or to take a tour. like the, I've written about the, the riverboat architecture tour in Chicago several times. It's different every time. Um, and being finding ways to make those connections so we're not just siloed off. Um, but no, that's a wonderful idea. I think and part of what it's going to take is for some... Uh, how do I put this? delicately. Um, I think there are still people who are very territorial within the field and who are not necessarily as willing to be on that equal footing or on that horizontal footing. Um, so I don't know what we do about that, but I think as with most things, we just proceed. And, you know, I, I'm becoming more and more a fan of the idea that it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. So... I've never an National Youth Network, and as a person who does have 115 member theaters, I have Google alerts on all 115 every day, and maybe my inbox fills with theater criticism from around the country. Um, and I do a lot of reposting and tweeting and forwarding those kinds of things. Um, because we are specifically interested in new work, we're working with ACCA and mm -hmm. a couple of like maybe possible things. 
And I love the idea of the multiple reviews. We often post multiple reviews. Is there uh, a world in which reviews are seen as editorial uh, work in the same way uh, George Will writes for the mm-hmm. Times or the Post or those kind of things? Do, because that then, to me, makes it more about that person's view of the play hmm. rather than this is what this play is about and what it looks like. Yeah. I think that's you. I think that's standard. I, I would say that that's the more usual. This is a point of view. In fact, for a while, and we've gone back and forth at the post. We actually put the word review, so that you would know this is somebody's opinion. This is. I I, I think that is how it's usually seen. I think it's. It, I think that's the so how can we make it clearer that this is somebody's opinion instead of this is God's opinion <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't know well I just had a question about how you approach writing reviews specifically are you looking at them as documenting as informing as a personal response as a sort of constructive criticism for artists, what approach are you taking when you're writing that critique as opposed to when you're doing the rest of your arts journalism coverage? I, I definitely um, take seriously like the documenting. Um, so that, I think that's a really important part of it. And then also for me, it's more of a uh, personal response when I write my reviews. Uh, I, I would say that like the difference when I write a preview and a review, it's, it's very market, I would say. Um, but I, sometimes I actually enjoy writing previews a little bit more just cause I don't have to, you know, think about like, I don't, I can just kind of go rah, 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 go see this. Um, and I think that, but when I, I think that like what we lose, like for instance, with the woman who mentioned the, the critics who are writing for $5 and sort of the erosion of, of like serious critics, like not serious. I mean, I'm sure those people are, are serious about their, what they're doing, but sort of like training and really building up criticism is like the, the, the reflection on the impact that this presentation of this show is going to have on your community and, um, sort of like what it's bringing to the table. Um, and that's why I try to bring to my reviews. I have uh, pretty strong ideas about things. Um, and I, I feel that's my obligation to have a strong opinion. Uh, or at least a well thought out one. Uh, what is, I do ask myself, I mean, there are, there are shows that I never want to see again. <laughs> and they will, these will typically be big shows that there is going to be reader interest in. I have been handing them off to colleagues because we don't have any stringers. But I said to Dan, who's the food writer, you and your wife would, should, should go to the Fox. It's Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> <laughs> but it'll, you'll have fun, you know. Um, what I, I really think, what, what I try to do, and then there's, uh, 
with the plays that you have seen time and time again and that you may continue to love. I don't know how many Twelfth Nights I've seen, but I love Twelfth Nights, so that's okay with yeah. me. On the other hand, have I not said everything I have had to say about the notion of disguise and the secret heart? <laughs> uh, so what I try to do each time is ask myself, who did they think they were doing this for? Mm-hmm. That is my central question. Then I try to put myself in that head, in that, that imaginary head, and say, did I like that? Did they, did they reach me or not? And of course, you don't have infinite space. You have about 500 words, right. a little more. And sometimes something will just jump out and it'll seem so important that it takes up all the regular space, you know. Yeah, I'm always going to manage to say the name of the play (laughs) and where it is and how much. But I devoted considerable space in a review this week to uh, a young actor whom I'd never seen before, and I thought she was terrific. And so I, you know, so she gets a 100 of those 500 words. You, the be, you, I don't want to become formulaic. There are reviews. I've seen them. I won't, it's, it's the same reason that I won't put stars on a review. <laughs> that, the plot, cast, direct. Right. The laundry we, list. How is this writing? How is this an opinion? You almost could do it before you went to the play. Right. The worst editor I ever had asked me, couldn't we meet deadlines better if I wrote the review? And then just left out the adjectives. Yeah. <laughs> the singer was off-key, eloquent. <laughs> I really... Yeah, Mad Libs reviews. Yeah. Emojis. <laughs> but I, what I really want is to say, I cannot possibly react to this until I've been there. Right, yeah. That's that's so so I guess I'm saying yeah you get me yeah loud and opinionated I, I think well since I had journalism training I think that I, uh, part of it is as kind of there is a repertorial function to it I think I'm in this room what am I taking in what am I noticing um, I think one thing that is kind of a fair cop uh, for me certainly and maybe for other critics is that since we're writers and we come from an appreciation of words um, and particularly when I'm reviewing new work I will probably talk a lot more about the text or the script or the story or the narrative and how that's crafted, then I will production elements. And I, my apologies to all the designers. Um, given limited space, sometimes we don't have, you know, I don't have room. You know, that that's often what gets cut, and I really feel badly about that. But if it's a new play, I also do feel like part of my job for my readers is to tell them, where does this fit in? Um, when I was freelancing at the Chicago Reader, it was we had okay at, at the time the long reviews were great. They could go two thousand, three thousand words. Oh my God, you could write wonderful essay. Well, they may not be wonderful, but they were long. Um, <laughs> and then our capsule reviews were like two hundred and fifty words. Well, you can do something with that, not a lot. Then they got cut down to one hundred and twenty-five words, and at that point. Even if you're trying to give plot synopsis, it's the Hollywood pitch. It's Bridezilla's meets something. I don't know. I mean, it's just you not. You just feel like you're being driven, as much as you try to resist it, to this very facile way of of talking about the work. Um, so yeah, I think it's repertorial. Um, I think for myself, I try to find some kind of spine. Sometimes, and sometimes that may come from wonderful design image. Like, okay, this is everything. Kind of flows from this 
from this lighting or from this set piece that kind of tells us about the divisions in this world. Um, so yeah, I try not to be formulaic. I'm sure I fall into that trap. Um, but I'm also more and more, and maybe this is just a consequence of getting older, um, an awful lot of certainty has sort of fallen away from me in recent years. And I'm absolutely okay with living in the place of, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what this means. I'm not sure if I like it. And I don't know that it matters if I like it. What matters is, am I able to talk or write about how it works on me in a way that at least will give some sense of it for somebody else who might be okay with living in that place of, I don't know what it is. I mean, and actually, I don't want to go back to the Cromer thing, but he was post-Tonys. I loved, he said, one of his friends came to see the band's visit and said, I really liked it. I don't know why. That's my perfect audience member. That's my perfect reader. I mean, that's the person who's just kind of like open to it. Like, I, maybe I'll figure it out. Maybe I won't. And it doesn't matter. It's, it's here. It's affecting me here immediately in the moment. And that's, that's what theater is. That, you know, that's, that's the best compliment I ever got from a reader. And I don't know this guy, but he said, he, he said he was nice enough to send me a note. And he said, when the play was over, I was crying. Thank you for explaining to me why. No, Carrie, I love I love what you said about like understanding writing the writing and plot and plot structure better than design elements, just because like we're trained to know that. And I think that's one of the reasons why like having someone who's seen a shit ton of theater over a, a long number of years is valuable in this profession. Because I know when I was starting out, I had no idea what a director does. I will just say that right there. And I had no idea how to, how to like look for sound design or lighting design. And it's like, it's seven years later. I'm like, okay, I can pick that out now. But it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of co consumption in order to even be able to articulate it properly. I don't know if that was the case for all of you. No, because I always had an editor who, mm. and, and I, this is the one thing that scares me most about the move to the internet, because people are posting reviews that the cat read, you know, <laughs> and I don't, <laughs> so, you know, an editor might well say, you know, this is the fourth play in a row where you have talked exclusively about the costumes. Don't these people ever sit on anything? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I, I don't know in, at the Post Dispatch. Okay, last night, I, have you seen, uh, uh, Blow Winds? No. Okay. So, there's only one more night for that performance tonight. So, I call, I, I could have posted it myself at 4 a.m., but I didn't. I sent it to an editor, I called about nine, and I said, listen, Get that up as fast as you can online. And by the time it's in the paper tomorrow, you can take the box off because you can't go see it. So I have been doing this a really long time. Have I mentioned that? And I don't want anything out there without an editor. And I, I, am, I just have no idea what's going on on that's that's money. the wild west. Money part is of what's it. going on. Lack of that's money. That's the wild yeah. west. Where you well, I mean, people just yeah. putting up their own reviews. Well, or, or just publications yeah. cutting editors. Or what? Yeah. Cutting yeah. editors yeah. because yeah. like, yeah. oh, what was an editor do? Just just put it up. Just put it up. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Yeah. If, does it, does it <laughs> Until it's fine? not no? fine. Well. 
Uh, I'm an educator and, and an artist. And um, so I'm wondering, because I'm listening to you guys talk about um, how you all kind of like went through journalism and sort of fell into arts journalism, or it, it sort of like was a meandering path. And uh, and I'm thinking about how, uh, regardless of what the future of journalism looks like and the internet and all that, um, say that it continues in this way, what advice would you give to a young person who might not know that arts journalism is a possible career path? I mean, we want to have more arts journalists in the, in the future. So I'm, I'm just wondering, maybe you can either talk about a mentor who really guided you in the way or, or some advice you would give to a younger you who didn't know this career was possible. Yes, speak to the moment. You're young. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think that uh, Judith makes a good point that it's really critical to find like a good editor or mentor. Um, if you are really interested in arts journalism, I'm going to just assume that you consume it in some way. So you're reading people. Um, if you admire them, you know, a good way to get started, honestly, is to email them or contact them and just say, you know, how'd you get started? Um could you give me any advice? And maybe like through that, they can say, oh, well, do you want to do like a little short something writing if you're interested in it? Like to me, before I kind of got started in writing, it felt like it was this like impossible place. And I was like, oh, how am I ever going to get in there? And then I just said, hey, I can I write for you guys? Like, can I intern here? And they were like, sure. So it's not <laughs> as hard as it looks. Um and yeah, I think like if you want to like getting in is maybe like you aren't going to get paid, but um, uh, if you want to get better, that's when you like really find those editors who are going to help you, those other writers who are going to tell you, look at your work and say, hey, this this is what you missed or this is where I think you could improve you know, your, your criticism. I also think it's crucial to not just think of the arts pages as the only place where your writing can live. Theater encompasses everything. It encompasses politics, environmentalism, you know, visual arts. I mean, there's so many things. And so just be creative about where you pitch. Maybe there's a show that has some kind of historical angle, and maybe you don't. There won't be an arts editor who's like has room for it. But maybe there's some other more niche publication that would say, "Oh yes, I'm absolutely interested in that." Um, and so I think, and that also means that for arts, you know, organizations that are producing, you have some place to draw audiences from other than the, pe the the whatever handful of people are clicking or reading the, um, I don't want to say handful, that sounds unnecessarily negative. Um, <laughs> big, big loving armful of people who are still reading the arts pages and care about that. I think you have to think of your audience. You know, there's a story I tell a lot about a friend of mine in Chicago who was in a performance art class and they had their graduation at this gallery in Chicago and this was like pre-internet so their show was listed in the Chicago Reader but it wasn't the sort of thing you went to really unless you got a flyer and you knew somebody in the class which I did so I went and there were these two older women sitting there who were sort of notable by the fact that they're not being ages they just happened to be older and um, so I thought oh they're probably somebody's mother or aunt or whatever so the next day I'm talking to my friend who was performing in it, and she said, did you notice those women? I said, well, yeah, they, they sort of stuck out, and I assume they were related to someone. She said, oh, I thought the same, but on the way down in the elevator, they were talking about the show. And this was not like Karen Finley, naked body covered with chocolate kind of performance art, but it was definitely, <laughs> it was definitely nonlinear, a lot of video, a lot of, you know, def, you know it, was, it was definitely not just storytelling. Um, 
And she said, they kept going on and on about how much they loved it. So I asked them, do you know somebody in this class? They said, oh, we didn't even know this was a class. We were in line at the Hot Ticks booth, and we were trying to get tickets for Les Mis, and it was sold out. <laughs> so we picked up the reader, this paper, the reader. We're from out of town. This was near our hotel. So we just thought, well, this sounds fun. So we went, and we're so glad we did. And I thought, again, don't you want to perform for that person every night of your life? Sure. And I think that's where we really need to be fighting for arts coverage a lot, is just to reach the people who don't know, you know, who... You know, we don't have to conv necessarily even convince them that this is something they want to see. We just have to let them know it is available. And you may not get everybody, you know. And she said, I have no idea if they'd seen performance art before or not. It didn't matter. They loved it. They had a good time. They, they were receptive to it for what it was. So I don't know if that answered your question. I'm sorry. <laughs> but One thing I would tell your, your student who wants a career in arts journalism uh, is that he, he, she should be open to just journalism. Yeah. You know, so you write a sports story. So you cover courts. You do, you know, it's all going to, you, you learn more. I, yeah, well, the person who wrote the recent Richard Rogers, um, bio, or was it uh, right. the, the Hamlet, the Rogers bio, the like, he, he, yeah, he, he, he was like a Metro reporter or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Who just yeah. loved R&H, so. Yeah. Hi, um, my name is Marshall, and I'm an actor, but um, I also write in Atlanta. Oh, great. So um, I started acting, and uh, my mom is, she went to school for journalism, and I started writing, well, I'm 60, say that. So I started writing, my mom, she went to school for journalism, and kind of ended up as my editor. Okay. But now in Atlanta, I end up as one of the voices for young people of color that they're trying to bring into the theaters. Mm -hmm. But I've noticed that with a lot of bringing in younger audiences, they want shorter reviews and they want like, they want less words and easily understandable things. So how do you think journalism has changed with <coughs> social media and everything has to be almost easier to digest instead of the way it seems to be? Easily understandable was always a goal. I don't want to make anybody... One, because I cover art at every end, you know, I go to the Muni, which has 11,000 seats, and I go to bizarre little productions, uh, all kinds of things. I never want my reader to feel like this would not be a welcoming space for me. And at least I can be a welcoming space, but that was Always, always the case, I think. Now, social media has certainly seems to have, as far as I can tell, it is a, a, a mode of writing dedicated to the extinction of nuance. So, <laughs> so, so, uh, I, I, I suspect that you're, you're gonna have to learn to choose your, if you've got so few words, choose them real carefully, but the sharp, pungent statement was always the best way to go. Yes, so I definitely have something to say. Well, I think that, um, honestly, like, I feel as if social media is sort of, I, I, I can see it kind of taking over even the role of the critic, because I know that social media, like, people's responses to things and word of mouth on social media has become so important that I can see, like, people devaluing, like, any other kind of sharing of like 
their show. Cause I feel as if like at some point, like all that's going to matter is, you know, that opening weekend response on Twitter and Facebook or whatever. So, um, as far as how it shapes my stuff, I do try to, I mean, I feel as if like for us, like writing, like our, our whole, how it shapes us is like trying to make our stuff more clickable. Um, and I don't know that length is necessarily the problem because, you don't know how long it is when you click on it. And if you re- read only like the opening bit of it, then that's fine too. So I think like maybe, um, maybe I just try to like tailor my like, like titles, but even that, I, I mean, I try to make it very clear that it's a review. I'm not sure that it's like influencing necessarily how I'm writing, honestly. Well, and I know for us American theater, because I help monitor the social media accounts, like, it's all, we'll, sh- the way we do it is like, you know, we'll share a story and then we'll share like a little snippet from that story at the top. And then sometimes if it's like a really, if it's an op-ed, we'll share like the most juicy part. And then there are people <laughs> who will just read the juicy part and then they'll get real angry in the comments, the social media comments. And so for better or for worse, like, you optimize it so people will look at it. And sometimes it, the most incendiary stuff people will actually look at. So sadly, we're all we're all in the business of chasing eyeballs. Hey, le plus que change, you know? Yeah, you know. What was yellow journalism? <laughs> you know, journalism. There, there were those old stories about the reporters who would break into a yeah, the front page. Yeah, yeah, to get a picture of the the woman who. Okay, that that's real. Yeah. Uh, we, it was always about eyeballs. I do think metrics ruin everything, but, uh, you know, it was always a bad idea. Right, but then you want to know how many people are reading. And so these days I'm very much like, okay, so how can I get even more people? Because, you know, I'm, you know, I'm like Tinkerbell. I need people to clap for me. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it's interesting. I want to talk about the attention span because there have been several shows that have been very popular that I can think of in Chicago that have drawn young audiences that have been butt long. I'm thinking of Sean Graney's All Our Tragic, which was like 12 hours of all, it was his, of uh, of all the Greek tragedies. And he drew, I mean, and it created this entire event where people had meals and they were talking at the breaks about what they thought was happening or, wow, I didn't know about, you know, this play, you know, this, this version of it. And it was just amazing. So I don't think it's just that they're looking for short, poppy in the art. So I don't, yeah. So that's an interesting dichotomy for me to think about. Like, we're fine with length on stage. We just maybe don't want it, you know, in the work, in, in the writing about the work. But you should tell us like what would get people your age to click on theater coverage. That'll be real helpful. It's like, so since everything, like, like, I think Hamilton was like the biggest change. Oh, yeah. Oh, so there is something for me. So in Atlanta, a lot of theaters, especially the Alliance where we are, they produce a lot of newer works. So there's a new show called Good Night Tyler about uh, police brutality. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a dark comedy about uh, a boy who died, but it's his ghost retelling his life story. So things like that are how I wish I tried to, um, just things that like make things pop. Like I once described someone's Ursula performance as evil, but like if evil was Celine Dion. <laughs> That's good. Because it's, like, it's what people would sort of understand mm-hmm. and just trying to keep attention spans. And I also write for uh, sites like Show Tickets or they'll, they'll be like, you know, just like write a quick you know, BuzzFeed-like piece or like, find Broadway villains you love to hate. You know, things that people would 
click on. Lists are great for that. Yeah. 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 Now, Time Out New York does this list that that's, that's it's like the most popular thing, which is like the hottest sh- uh, showboys or showgirls on Broadway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're all terrible people, guys. Come on now. Yeah, one more. Okay, we have room for one more question. Well, just really to, to, to follow up on this, the, the, the excitement that I hear from you on lists and stuff like that, and what Jonathan was saying, it's echoed by something that Judith brought up earlier, I think, which was the, the Shakespeare, the drawing. The cartoon. The cartoon. But to me, those are ways forward because it's a way of using, and music as well, right? How can theater journalists embrace the social media and bring the visual and the and the and the, the other media into the journalism in a way that still has journalistic integrity, no doubt, but also does what the internet does well, give people shiny things to look at or great things to listen to. I hope so. That's the question of the age. There's not really. much I won't try. Yeah, we'll try. Okay, keep keep going at it. Yeah. And yeah. In the meantime, you know, read our stuff and you know, click oh, on it, please. There's so many. I know we're running out of time. I'm Justin Anderson, associate AD at Aurora Theater in Atlanta. Um, my question uh, actually is with regard to us as practitioners. Um, what I often find on social media is that. Um, we have a hard time being um, critical about our own work internally. Like, everything has to be the best thing since sliced bread, or else I'm not going to get hired by someone, or this, that, or the other. So I find a real um, erosion and dilution in social media from our own practitioners in our region, because we can't actually engage in real critical, thoughtful response to work out of fear of fill-in-the-blank. Does that make sense? And I'm just curious, oh, yeah. like, how do we keep that rigor alive for us as practitioners because of everyone having um, access now to posting an opinion about sure, something? Sure. I think it's really about respecting your audience. There's a company I love in Chicago. They're actually in the suburbs, 16th Street Theater in Berwyn, which is a near western suburb. They do wonderful work. And um, Ann Filmer, their artistic director, was like, this is your theater, Berwyn. You don't have to go to downtown Chicago. She does a lot of new, new, you know, world premieres. She's worked with a lot of local writers. Uh, she's done some work by Karen Zachariah. She did a, an, ad, an adaptation Karen did last year of Into the Beautiful North by a novel by Louis Urea. One of my favorite shows of last year. But she's like created this welcoming environment. It's a tiny theater. It's like 50 seats. It's in a cult, you know, in a community center. And I know that her audience goes to see everything because they respect the fact that she is creating work for them. So if sometimes the work doesn't fly for them or they don't like a particular show, it's still like, but I like you, Anne. I see you in the in the lobby. We talk. I know you. You know, and that's the advantage if you're small. You're not going to get that at the Goodman. You know, you're not going to you know necessarily. I mean, Bob Falls is not re- doing meet and greet every night after a show. Uh, he, he probably can't. So I think that's part of it. Understand that you are local. Understand that you are of your community. And you can build that loyalty. So, they, you know, people forgive a lot if they think you're actually there for them and that you actually care about what they have to say. And it also goes back to theater is not this isolated thing. What you're talking about is a, is a, a social trend. I, I mean, a society-wide trend. So that everything is the best. How could it... You know, nothing's the best unless something else isn't. Right. And the culture, this is what I meant about nuance. But uh, I don't know what to tell you to do in your own house, but I try to avoid the superlative. Yeah. That's my little stab. I mean, opinions are like assholes. Everyone has one. So <laughs> there's just like one person's opinion of the show. Someone else may have a different opinion. Doesn't mean like 
their opinion, the bad reviewer's opinion, is invalid. It's just a, yeah. if I, people are reacting to the show, is that not a good I, thing? I, I, I guess. I don't know. How do we, as as the artists involved in creating the work, still maintain our own rigor within the critical discourse? Modesty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess. And after the show, like, uh, gather and talk about like what went well, what didn't, and just be prepared for the fact that some people, may, some people may not like it. Yeah. Is that like a, is that a thing that happens? Maybe that should be a thing that happens. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. Yeah. Don't read the reviews. I guess. I don't, yeah, know. Right. Well, I don't know why you would read the reviews if you're an actor. I think if you yeah, can you're only. An actor, you're a producer. You need <laughs> well, to. producer. Needs to, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's all the time we have, everyone. Uh, thank, thank you for you coming. So much for being here. Thank you guys. Bye. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Yeah.